Hello everyone, this is Saqib. Uh, welcome to another episode of Tennis with an Accent. And adding to the accents today is uh, Susie Reid back uh, in UK, who we had for a podcast a couple of weeks ago and everybody loved that episode. Welcome, Susie. Hi. Hi, everybody. How are you? Good to be back. Yeah, so where do you want to start? There's a, obviously, the World Tour final is underway. We already have two winners. Uh, Sasha Zverev just joined Roger Federer as a winner on day one. Uh, did you see this result coming? Uh, um, to be honest, uh, to be honest, I thought that this match would be very, very close. Um, and I know that David Law ran a poll on his podcast, and I actually said to him I had Chilich winning it by like literally, you know, a nose. Um, but I also made the comment that I thought that whereas quite often the new people who come to the World Tour Finals can struggle that actually someone like Sasha is someone who can enjoy the big occasion and can rise to that occasion. So I said there was a possibility that he could surprise us, and I think he has surprised us. I think, however, it has to be said that Chilich mentally doesn't seem to be so secure at the moment and has a tendency to give up leads. I mean, he gave up a, lead, a break in the third set. Um, Sasha actually got himself quite worked up over a, over a call, um, and that actually seemed to benefit him, and he came through in a tight third set. So I didn't expect it, but I didn't not expect it. I think it was a result that could have gone either way, don't you think? Yeah, I fully agree. If you look at both groups, this was one match that had the most potential of staying close, and it did, even though it had certain lapses yep. from Chilich's uh, part. And just like you said, I also thought just because uh, – uh, Sasha Zverev has had a very long season for you know his age. He's played, what, 95 matches, including doubles. So I thought this is an opportunity where Chilich can resurrect his ship. And let's stick with Chilich for a minute. Uh, since losing to Manorino, was it in Japan, I think, he lost in the semifinals. He's had some very uh, unpredictable results. Like you said, he's blown leads. And uh, when you think he's going to put on a run, he again has a very unusual loss. So is it self-doubt? Because he's someone who's already won a major. He's won a Masters 1000. He won a 500 in Basel last year. He's a Davis Cup winner. So what's blocking uh, his mental progress at this stage? I think it's a real puzzle. I, th I think that's a very difficult question to answer because he does get into these places where you think, you know, he's going to have the most terrific run and you only have to look back at Wimbledon and you think, you know, that was incredible the run that he had he improved he, he improved his uh, the depth that he went to in the Wimbledon tournament every year for the last three years and then this year he ends up getting to the final um, and I think if he hadn't been physically impeded I think he would have given Roger a tougher competition but you think this is fantastic build from this um, but he still displays on the court for me mental doubt he doesn't seem to quite be able to hide it and I think that can be exploited by other players do you feel that at times that he looks twitchy he looks uncomfortable he doesn't look settled uh, I don't know if he looks uh, or maybe he does you're right because I look at certain players like Chilich even though in this generation uh, we have a lot of players who are good from back of the court but for me Chilich's identity is still his serve and you know back in the day again I'm going to bring the Becker Sampras even Sevichera those guys could play from the back, but when the chips were down or when it mattered more, they would rely on the serve. And someone, even Federer does that. When he's not playing well, he'll find a way. So I expect Chilich and Raonic's these guys, to yep. find a way in tie breaks against big opponents. And let's take an example. In the Shanghai, I think it was the semifinal when Chilich played Nadal. In the tie break, 
he missed all first serves. To me, that's something uh, that he has to improve on because, you know, fine, you can't beat Nadal from the back of the court, but tiebreak is your strength. If you get there, you have to get that first ball in. That's something Becker and Sampras, these guys were famous for. But that to me is totally mental. That has to be mental, Sakib. That's no other, there's no other explanation for that. He sees that finishing line in front of him and it becomes suddenly too big a thing to get to. He can't quite get there. And I think that puts him under pressure on the serve. And I, is it- It's easy for me to sit here, but that's the only thing I see. His identity has to be his serve. Fine, he's a great uh, player from the baseline. He can rally, he moves well for a guy who's 6'5". But if you're struggling and then you get getting into these situations when you are into close matches, you're right. Mentality has to outshine and you have to establish who you are. Especially if you're keeping this kind of company, you're making World Tour finals third year in a row, you're competing for big tournaments and the margins are very slim. You have to live or die by you know your best strokes. You won't expect Federer, Nadal or Djokovic to give you those big matches by making unusual errors. And actually, when he was with, um, who was his, was it, was he with Ivanisevic for a while? Yes, he was. And Ivanisevic actually slightly remodeled, I was just trying to think out loud, he slightly remodeled his serve, didn't he? He gave him slightly lower toss and that very, very quick arm he made even quicker for a while with Chilich made him slightly more forward in his stance. And for a while, actually, I thought that that was why Chilich started to make inroads and actually you know, managed to get through in 2014 to the Grand Slam. And then the the Cincinnati Masters, I kept thinking this is his serve is actually taking him in there. And I'm not sure whether his serve this season has been quite as good as you say at times when he has needed it most. He's gone away in certain matches. I mean, there are two matches. I remember one against Wawrinka at Roland Garros. He came in all guns blazing and then was manhandled in the semifinals or quarterfinals. And then similarly, at last year's U.S. Open, when he was catching fire and then he loses to Jack Sock in a very uh, unusual fashion. So he's someone, you know, who's, who starts and then stops. And uh, what do you think of his chances in advancing now in the group today? He won a set. He most probably will play Sock on Tuesday. Is that a winnable match? He has, he has to be Sock. I mean, he has he has to beat Sock. He's got to be braver about coming to net as well because he, when he does get that big serve in and he does have a big wingspan, he can actually get those approach shots deep into the corner and he should trust himself more coming forward. I mean, I must say that watching the Zarev-Chilich match just there waiting for us to get together, I was I was desperate for them to get to the net more and actually take advantage of the slightly faster pace of that court. There's too many endless baseline rallies between those two. And if he can get to the net before Sock, then he may be able to just influence his own outcome. He doesn't want his outcome to be influenced, you know, as a result of other matches. He was my pick to come through the group with Roger. I have to say that the... um, you know, things have changed now because he's lost that match. I did expect him to come through, even though I thought it would be tight. So I do think it's going to be a scrum, actually, between him and Zarev and Sok. They're all capable of coming through second behind Roger. I don't think Roger is any doubt for anything else but first place in that group. Yeah, I agree. And uh, I don't know if you watched the Sok match today. Uh, for someone who made this trip at the very last minute by winning the Bear Sea Masters, he really didn't seem out of place. Uh, fine, he's playing Federer. I think after the first set, he really held his own. He had some chances where Federer could have broken him, but then Sox started serving bigger, and uh, he was maximizing his ability. You know, his backhand is not going to hold up in this kind of a matchup. So he was playing 
I thought Sot played well. I thought Sot played really well. But the key thing that you have to take away from that whole match is that he didn't create a single break point. And that goes on Roger's serve. And that goes back to what you just said at the beginning, Saqib, that he, Roger's serve, even when he was playing a first round match, which is always tricky on that court. As we were saying earlier, they've practiced on it, but they haven't actually played a match on it. They don't get a very long turnaround time in terms of um, acclimatizing. And the first matches are always sticky, but still Sock could not create a single break point on the serve of Roger, which was just utterly dependable when he needed it to be. And that's brilliant what he just pointed out. I mean, sometimes as great as Roger Federer is or even some of the other great players, we've taken them for granted. And this is, I mean, Federer looked sharp for a set and a half and then he wasted so many opportunities. He could have had an easier day against Sock. But in the meantime, what, yeah. what got lost is he never came close to losing his own serve. And a lot of time it's about protecting his serve in these indoor conditions. Uh, Definitely. I'll go out on a limb and I still think... Uh, I'll even go further and say I think Sock can make the semifinals because uh, I was impressed the way he's competing. He has that uh, you know little attitude switch since the Labor Cup. Maybe the McIndoe pep talk everybody's talking about is doing some work. And uh, he believes he can hang with these guys. He's had some wins over Chilit and I believe he also beat Zverev last year somewhere indoors. So, you know, yeah. I, that's a very good point. I think Paris definitely, it doesn't matter who he played in Paris, at the end of the day, you still got to come through and win the tournament. And he has now got a Masters on his belt. He is now top 10. So, you know, that voice that has been sitting behind him saying, you can be the number one American player, you can be the number one US player, you can actually hang with those big boys now. That is actually coming to fruition and he can actually believe that voice. And he does have a good feisty attitude on court. I, I did think he was looking as though he belonged there. And yes, I agree. I think the Labour Cup has been a good stepping stone for him. But it's a, it's a big but for me. His backhand is oh, needs so much work. You know, as Robbie Koenig was pointing out today, he has less variety on that shot. You know, he can't do as much with it. He can't get out of trouble easily with it. Um, and we just have to see how much that is exploited. If Chilich and... Um, Zarev can exploit with width with their big levers on that sort backhand. Is that going to cause him problems? I think uh, it's no secret that both Chilich and Zverev are more complete and they have more well-rounded games. So if those guys are on, Sok will stru- uh, trouble, uh, struggle. But Sok, on the other hand, is someone I think who's okay. He knows his weaknesses and he still has a slight swagger. And I think he definitely can volley what we're talking about. He has good pans of the net. He's an accomplished doubles player. And I he believe- has great hands at the net. I also would like to. I would. I would also. I don't question his fitness, but I'm slightly. I'm always slightly sort of perturbed by his fitness. He never quite looks as fit as he could be. You know, does he need to drop a few pounds? I don't know. You know, I'm not privy to his 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 fitness routine. Um, is it just the way that he is on court? I just feel that he could be better. He could be quicker. Um, and is that as much about fitness as it, as it is about his actual, you know, the technicalities of his game? Yeah, excellent observation. Yeah, I, I know where you're going with this. He definitely could be fitter. Uh, he plays a lot of tennis. He's not tiring or cramping. But yeah, he could definitely be in more shape. Like Roddick dropped some pounds in what 2009 when he was working with Larry Stefanki and had that run uh, to the Wimbledon finals. So yeah, let's keep an eye on Jack Sock. And uh, do you think this Boris Becker group is a more complicated group, if not the group of death, like we talked in Singapore? Do you think this group has uh, more potential? Do you know, 
I think that's a really interesting question because when the groups were announced, I did look at it and I thought, oh gosh, you know, all the big hitters are in that group. The people who could potentially hit Federer off the court are in that group. Um, But then with the complexities coming into play around Nadal, is he injured or if he is not injured, is he fit enough to go deep? Actually, suddenly the other group, the Sampras group, looks just as tight um, and I actually was making a few observations today thinking, you know, is this the week when Dimitrov actually comes good? Is this the, the week when Dimitrov actually stops losing those really tight matches against Nadal? Is this the week then when Goffin, who actually has had very tight matches against Nadal as well in the past, is this the time that he actually makes Nadal run so much that he can actually come through? Although I am aware, obviously, that in the back of Goffin's mind is Davis Cup. Um, but I have got Grigor coming through that group. <laughs> and at the moment, I haven't got another one coming through. <laughs> with, with Nadal, at this time of the season, is always uh, the question about uh, the niggles because they always escalate with him and because of his uh, physical style. And uh, yeah, at this point, I would say if Nadal completes a group setting, he has to be one of the two semifinalists. And I'm with you 100%. I think it's Dimitrov's group to lose. Because, uh, yeah, I do think it's Dimitrov's group to lose. I have Dimitrov winning the group and Nadal probably is, obviously, I say I haven't got anyone else coming through. Nadal is obviously the, you know, the name on the bit of paper that I'm going to draw out of the hat. Um, but I, I am just holding back on his fitness. As I say, fit enough to play, but fit enough to win? I don't know. I just don't know. Moyes, Carlos Moyes is pretty bullish and they said they went back and saw the doctor and it's okay. There's it's nothing. It's not a new new concern. So no, he's been pretty open since U.S. Open that the goal is to, you know, beat Federer. But then of course uh, they had this match in Shanghai where Nadal, you know, uh, did not get over the line. So yeah, but Nadal's been less than bullish, and actually some of the journalists that have spoken to him have actually then come back and said, you know, the knee clearly is not a hundred percent, but he's going to give it as good as he can get. So I think that yeah, Moya is doing the big I am. And I think Nadal is, is very much always in that mode of downplaying his chances. He's never, ever wavered from that. That's not something that you can, can say is a new thing. He's always been like that. But I do think that the, he is thinking more long-term and he said that initially, didn't he? He said, it's not just about the world tour finals. It's about still being able to play and start this new season. Well, and actually get off to a good start. So I think he is still looking longer term Nadal. So if he plays and he doesn't, he plays well enough to satisfy himself, I think he'll be pleased with that. I mean, yes, of course he wants to win, but I don't think he wants to do it at all risk. And if he uh, comes through as a second man in the semifinal, then most likely the ticket on Saturday would be the most coveted ticket. Saturday night session would put Federer and Nadal in the semis if uh, Becker group holds to uh, the true expectations that you know Federer is going to not lose a match. So let me ask you one question. This rivalry has changed this year a little bit, Federer and Nadal. Uh, how is it for Nadal and Federer to... What's the mindset when they answer these questions? Because Federer never had a five-match winning streak and vice versa. Nadal never lost to Federer more than four or five times. So how has this changed the dynamic uh, that we don't see? I know like Federer really, was always a better hardcore player, but now he's had the confidence in putting this run. Yeah, I think so. they've actually, I think they've both been actually um, pretty honest about it, actually, that it has now come out as being a discussion about surfaces. That has been in the last few days. It's all been about, 
you know, I've been doing well because I haven't had to play him on clay. And then Nadal actually countering all very amicably saying, you know, I'm not keen on playing Roger on certain surfaces. And these are the surfaces that we get every year at the World Tour Finals. And then he's obviously used that as a springboard for talking about changes of surface. But I think they have actually used that dynamic to talk about how their rivalry has has evolved over the the you know the last decade and a half actually that it was just a general rivalry and now it's much more specifically about when they play and on what they play so does this prove a point because uh, nick lester shared i think uh, something on twitter last week which had uh, all the masters 1000 uh, court surface the, the speed index and uh, yes. the slowest was indian wells and that's where federer had the most commanding win over nadal is that coincidence or is this a desert heat because normally, the- I think it's I think it's conditions as much as anything, and I think it's obviously how they feel at the time, how confident they feel. Federer has always played well there, always. Even though the court may be slow, the balls travel fast through the air, don't they? Because obviously the air is thinner out in the desert. Um, so it's very hard to say. I think I'm I'm not sure whether I believe all those court pace indexes either. Do you? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's tough. Uh- to say anything once you see these readings because you, at least I can speak for myself when I'm watching, I say, wow, I never thought Miami was faster than Indian Wells. So no, never. these are the things that, you know, the naked eye doesn't catch on TV, even though in Miami I was courtside. If somebody had told me Miami was faster than Indian Wells and even, you know, like the clay in Madrid, it looks faster than most hard courts to me, but then it was the slowest this year. So yeah. there you go. I mean, it, it's hard And to- actually you would, you would think that someone like Nadal would thrive so much in Miami because of the heat and the humidity and the slightly heavier conditions. But it doesn't seem to gel for him. So, do you know, so much of it is about the time of year, I think, for Nadal. Nadal has traditionally, I don't like to make generalisations, but the end of the year has always been tougher for him. Um, And I'm not sure whether that is because of the way that he looks and plans his schedule physically in the same way that Federer would aim to absolutely peak in the grass court season and and then secondly in the hard court season because those are his two strengths. And Nadal totally is geared to peak during those four to five weeks of clay court. I think that has a lot to do with it. Do you? Uh, Yes and no. And you're right. I think a lot of time Nadal's season has come to an end after the US Open or he's injured or he hasn't played. Uh, but contrastingly, to, I just want to add to what you said. Nadal has had some of his best results in Montreal and you know Toronto. And those are one of the fastest hard courts out there. Mm-hmm. So sometimes it, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's amazing how we make a certain argument or discussion and uh, for Nadal or against Nadal. And then sometimes the results are totally the opposite. Exactly. And that's where I think all the variables come into play. You know, how hard have they, how deep has he gone into the grass court season? How tired is he after the grass court? How good are his grass courts, his knees after the grass court season? How early is it on in the hard court season that he's having success and then does that tail off? Um, I would say that the majority, much of his success in the hard court season has come earlier rather than at the tail end. I mean, he's pulled out of Basel, what, three times in the last five years? I can't quite remember the exact numbers um and he's only got to the final of the the year-end championships i think is it once when he lost uh, i think twice i think it, it 
Yeah, sorry, 2010 when he lost to Federer and then he lost to Djokovic, didn't he? So, you know, I, I still think that the hardcore season is still not impossible for him at all. He's very, very good at it. He's very good. He's just won Beijing. He's just gone to the final of... But it's it's not his favourite. And I'm not sure whether mentally there's a, you know, there's a barrier there. Just like with Federer now, there has become... There was a slight barrier with the clay that you can't fully release either mentally or physically on a on a surface that you don't feel is your own. And I think that has become part of the rivalry now. Part of, that has become part of the rival. They're very open about talking about that. I don't like him playing on this surface. I don't like him playing on to play him on that surface. Although I, Nadal did go, did go one step further by then, as I said, using that to talk about the fact that he wanted the surface changed or he would like it. He made a point about that that it would be fair if the surface was changed for the um, year in championships, which I I struggle with as a as a concept. As Federer said, he has a point, but I struggle as to how you could make that work. Yeah, even uh, I think some players in the past, like I remember Rios complained in 97, he even f- went this far and said this tournament uh, has been made for F- Becker and Sampras to win because it's always indoors, always carpet. Yeah. But then uh, clay has yeah. a window and grass, on the other hand, is a diminishing window. But uh, I don't know. Yes. It's, who, who decides? Is it the host country or is it something dictated by ATP? What is your knowledge on this? My knowledge is as much as I, I know through through talking to people that the year in championships have always come at the end of the indoor season. So therefore, traditionally, the, and at the end, the hardcore season or stroke carpet, as it was, you know, 25, 30 years ago. So they, they obviously then content, continue on that surface. It would be very difficult to go back to clay without a period of adjustment you know, you can't suddenly whisk them off from a hardcore in Bursi and say, right, next week you're going to be playing the year-end championships in on clay somewhere else. Because what about the adjustment? They've played clay six months earlier. Okay, so I had another question because uh, I'm sure most people who listen to the podcast, you know, will want to go to this tournament one day. And since you've been to both tournaments in London, uh, Wimbledon and this one, how is the environment different? at these locations. Uh, I know this is uh, not a slam and it's only been around for nine years. Uh, what are your takeaways from your visits to the O2 Arena? Oh, I mean, London is a show. It's a, it's obviously, it's it's a very prestigious tournament, but it's as much as a, a theatrical and a show experience as it is um, a prestri- prestigious, you know, fifth slam, if you like, to give it another name. Um it's very easy to get tickets. It's very easy to get tickets. Um, you can either wait for the order of play or and go online and click away, or you can buy off an, another website, off, off a, um, you know, a resale website, or you can simply go onto the official website and take your chance and get a morning or an afternoon session. It's very well organised in that sense. And it's no different from any other um, indoor tournament, Sakib, that we would go to during the season. If you wanted to go to Shanghai, if you wanted to go to, um, to Vienna, you would just log on and you would buy from the the actual directly from the tournament so there's no ballot or anything like that so that's easy it's incredibly easy to get to I think that is one of the reasons why it has been so successful and why it's been kept in London for so long it is very easy to get to you go direct on the tube the tube comes out virtually inside the venue so therefore it's very safe Um, you're actually directly there when you arrive 
there's a fan zone um, where you can see the players practice and you can, you know, practice your surf strength and do all that kind of thing and and um, look at the various uh, marketing information to do with the players. I understand from a journalist friend of mine this year, Marianne Beavis, that the fan zone this year has been reduced and that one of the practice courts is only available to corporate um, guests. Now, I don't know whether that's because of building work they're doing. I don't know whether it is just because the fan experience is being reduced. That is a problem for me increasingly at tournaments. The most important part of tennis are the fans, the fans who come along and put their own, you know, bottoms on seats and actually join in and participate in our part of the show. And if some of these tournaments become very expensive and very big and very corporate, that I worry that the fan experience for the for the the real fan is is reduced and is lost. Um, so that would be my concern about why they would not keep it in London. I would want them to move it eventually from London so that someone else can actually create an identity within their own city um, and get their own people involved, etc., and take tennis maybe to another city that hasn't had it. You know, you think of all the European cities that could have this tournament. There are quite a few. Or, as you say, it could it go back to New York? Or, I don't know, could they take it back to the Far East? That's a big question. But it's, it's a very accessible tournament. It's great fun. It's a great venue. It's very good visually. There's not a really a bad seat to be had in the house. Um, and it has great atmosphere. Well, you answered, you know, all my questions in one, which is good. <laughs> That's the you know knowledge for someone who's been there. And I hope I can attend this event one day till it's in London. Uh, so before we wrap this up. But it's not it's not cheap. You know, I mean, hmm. the best seats to have are in the, what I call the kind of the, the central lower tier the sort of the 100 blocks and they're about seven they're priced about 80 pounds if you buy them from the official um outlet um but then like for instance tonight the chillish match the as soon as people knew what the um the order of play was you could have picked up those tickets tonight for about 20 quid so you could have gone and had a great evening of tennis i think there was a really good doubles beforehand um with um mahu and Herbert. And you could have had a great evening of tennis for £20. So, you know, that's the benefit if you don't always want to go and see the big, big, big names. You don't always want to see Federer. You don't always want to go and see Nadal. And obviously, you know, years going back and years going forward, you hope it's going to be more of the Djokovic's, Murray's, etc. Um, but the slightly under-the-radar names, you can go and get great tennis for £15, £20. Yeah, that's always the case. Even US Open, the prices, you know, they say the tickets are always... Uh... Uh, determined by the demand and uh, this year uh, we saw Federer twice on Ash and I clo- uh, you know I paid close to what 200 bucks every time for the tickets so and those were like the nosebleeds those are not even good seats so wow right up there yeah, right up there yeah. so that's uh, that's the nature I think uh, that's uh, you know becomes this uh, the tennis experience so before we yeah. wrap this up I know it's getting late uh I know you are pretty active on tennis Twitter and uh, you're part of many discussions. And uh, what is your take on Federer getting the sportsmanship award? And there's a lot of talk about this. If the ATP is nominating this and the process is it's voted by the players, then uh, then what's the issue here? Are, because it's probably secret ballot. The players are not under any uh, influence to promote Federer. And that's sometimes the notion. So I, I think if I'm Federer, I can even take my name out because, you know, every year he's winning this. But uh, what's the issue? Why 
him winning this year is more of an issue compared to years before? I think, I mean, just going back briefly to the way you explained how it's done, I mean, I think that's part of the problem, actually. I think that the ATP are not that transparent about how these awards are done. That's number one. Um, so do they nominate do they nominate without consultation? So, you know, do the hierarchy at the ATP, do they decide who they are going to nominate and how does that decision get made? That's the first question. The second question is... I think that with things like the Sportsmanship Award, the actual criteria for that award, that it gets absolutely lost. And we have all these episodes that go on. You get these one-offs on the court where someone goes and helps someone who has, you know, fallen over on the court, like when Del Potro went and helped Almagro on the court. And, you know, of course he would. I mean, a normal human being would do that, would have compassion and, and kindness. But for me... Is that part of what we call the sportsmanship award? Now, the reason that therefore so many questions get asked because is the criteria is not made clear about the fair play continuously throughout the year, both on and off the court. So conducting yourself in a way that, you know, you would like your other players to conduct themselves so you earn their respect and vice versa throughout the year, both on and off the court. So that's the first one. And then the second one is that you promote the game off the court. Now, that doesn't have to be shouting from the rooftops. That can be done in a very small way, you know, with local communities, local courts, local charities. Do you know what I mean? And I think part of the problem is that none of that is actually visible for the fans or whatever. And so we always have this constant discussion. I didn't realise until I read Ben Rothenberg's tweets that the media also vote for those. So extraordinary. But my first my first question is, how do the ATP decide who they are going to nominate? That is a big question for me. So therefore, they don't need to nominate Roger every year. He wasn't mined. He doesn't he doesn't it isn't a prerequisite that he wins the sportsmanship award. But what slightly riles me is when the media then come at the fans about it, when actually they need to be um, brave enough to actually discuss it with the actual structure in place, the management structure in place, the ATP, so and the players. You think it'll help if they uh, break it down, the results, say if player A got, say, like 200 votes and player B, who was runner-up, got, say, 35 votes and just, you know, just to, you know, reveal more in terms of uh, the voting. I think it would help if they revealed more about why they nominate which players and about the criteria. I actually think that if they revealed the voting, then I think that would just feed tennis Twitter even more. I think that could be... It, that could go both ways. That could be very, very difficult. I think that would create a lot of a, a lot of feeling. I think out there on tennis Twitter, because there's no doubt about it, people, you know, feel that it's turned into a popularity contest, and they feel that it's you know Federer can't lose a single award up until when he retires, which is you know he would totally disagree with that. Um, the only thing I'm delighted about this year is I do think that he deserved the comeback player. Um, because he had the longest period of time off and he had to make yeah. a very deliberate decision to do that. And then he came back and won a Grand Slam. I mean, that is quite extraordinary. Um, 
And the fans' favourite, that's just about his popularity around the world. And he has the biggest fan base, you know, throughout not only Europe, but all the other continents that we could sit here and name all night. So that is that he's probably not going to lose that. And that's purely about the fact that he is the face of tennis. You don't have to be a fan to know that he is the face of tennis. No, I agree 100%. Definitely uh, the comeback award was, in my opinion, also deserving because of exactly the reasons you gave. And also after that kind of a layoff, he came back and won a major something he hadn't done in almost four and a half years. So that comeback was very emphatic. Exactly. uh, Exactly. Before we conclude, I would also like to add along the lines that you said, Del Potro helping Almagro. People forget that these are colleagues. They're all friends. They practice together. Yeah. This is the environment. So you would help someone if you see, you know, slip on the road on on ice or something. People, stuff's a human tendency. And uh, just exactly. a player is not sportsmanship to me. I know it's a very noble gesture, but it's also a very expected gesture. That's how you know yes. most people are raised to be. I think exactly. I think there are very there are very interesting subtle degrees yes. of sportsmanship out there. I can remember when um, Nick Kyrgios was injured when he was playing the match against Milman. Um, golly, I'm trying to remember when that was. Was that Cincinnati? No, that was the uh, U.S. Open. Sorry, U.S. Open. Yeah, when he sorry. My brain is, what time is it? 10 past 11, that's why. <laughs> so when, at the US Open, he was injured, but he didn't pull out of the match. He didn't stop okay. the match. He's continued to play. So that, for me, is one very important thing. And then secondly, I believe that he then um, tried to play the doubles as well because he didn't want yeah. to disappoint his partner. Now, it just happens to be Nick Curse. That could have been anybody. I could have quoted any name. Those sort of gestures, for me, are yeah. equally as important you know, that you try and give the crowd at least a game and you try and support your colleagues if they're trying to get their doubles points up or whatever. Things like that. Um, and then obviously promoting the game off court. And I actually think that that's one thing I'd like to hear more about that a lot of the players do, because I know a lot of them do a lot. We don't hear quite enough about that, I feel, that some of the things they're trying to do. I had no idea what... Um, horse to cow was doing in Romania to earn that humanitarian award. That's great. I'm glad that I now do know that. But I'd like to hear more about it. And you know, there's an excellent point you made about Nick because Nick polarizes opinion so much out there. If someone else had done what he'd done against Milman, it would have been seen as an act of kindness and sportsmanship. But someone like Nick does it and all of a sudden, you know, the opinions are out there. He should be thinking about his career. It's stupid. He shouldn't have put his shoulders. And similarly, what you said, Ernest Gulbis did the same thing in 2014 US Open when him and Dominic team were friends and under the same coach. He had a camp yeah. and he didn't withdraw. And then after the match, he said, look, I don't want to withdraw because that's something I don't do. And everybody knew they're like good friends. He didn't want team to get his first win at a major at that expense. And a lot of time, who's doing the act is over get, gets overlooked because we don't certain, certainly see Gulbis in the same light as we do Federer and, you know, Del Potro and Cilic. So a lot of time... It, Exactly. You know, it's the act, and, and a lot of time we separate the act from the person who's committing the act. Yeah, it's very small things for me. I mean, like when Roger played the final in Montreal against Zarev, you know, clearly Zarev played extremely well and deserved to win. But there was no doubt about it from the beginning of the second set onwards, Roger was very compromised physically. But he didn't want that to be discussed. And in the same way in Shanghai, when Rafa was clearly compromised um, in the match against Roger, again, Nadal 
I don't want to discuss it. You know, he won fair and square. Roger said the same thing about Zarev. And things like that, I think, go unnoticed. Whereas when everybody jumps over the net and hugs everybody, that is immediately made too much of. You know, we can all go and hug someone if we've won or lost. <laughs> but how you behave if you haven't felt good on the day um, and you've lost, you know, that tells me a lot about you as a person. Yes, always a bigger picture and the smallest things, not like sometimes the sound bites and sometimes these uh, selfie hashtag moments that we exactly. use to identify, you know, true character certificates in this era. Uh, anyway, exactly. I mean, and I, uh, there's another example, actually. Dominic Team in the US Open match against Del Potro. You know, I mean, most of us would have been tearing our hair out. You know, how many match points did he have? How many chances did he have to win that match? He had the crowd totally pro Del Potro. He just got on with that match. And some people could have been broken by that, but he just held his head up, you know, rough day at the office, didn't come through it. And that, those sort of things, they count as well. Okay, so thanks for the chat. I know we can go on for a while, but it's getting late in UK. And uh, hopefully we'll have you back on this podcast again because a lot of people like, you know, the previous episode. Thanks for doing this. And... uh yeah, look forward to speaking with you again. That's a pleasure. And I hope that we can um, we can talk about all the guys coming back next time because that's all also beginning to be to bubble under, isn't it? So Murray bubbling under, Djokovic and Agassi chat going on and Stan actually getting back on the court. So there's a lot there's a lot to, to get excited about going forward. <laughs>